Hey guys, it's Carrie again, and we are back for our third and final podcast in this mini-series, and today I have a little bit of a special treat for you. In the first episode, I gave you kind of a general view of female orgasmic disorder, and I also talked about orgasm in general and, you know, why they matter, why orgasms are important. And on the most recent episode, I gave a lot of information on common disorders that are comorbid with female orgasmic disorders. And I gave you a typical picture of what characteristics someone who has the disorder might have. And lastly, I also went over the current ways of treating and assessing anorgasmia. And now I just want to kind of take that conversation into future opportunities of growth uh, for this field. So we're going to start with me discussing some common themes that I found about treatment and issues surrounding female orgasmic disorder. I will talk about where treatment and research can go from here. And then at the end of the podcast, my dear friend Michelle, who is an expert in sex education, is going to talk about the implications that system has on female orgasmic disorder and then female sexuality more generally. So to start, I think when it comes to the assessment of female orgasmic disorder, a lot more care needs to be taken with viewing the patient more holistically. As I pointed out, many women experience problems with orgasm and each woman's experience is unique to her. And you have to be able to see each woman for all of her strengths as well as all of her potential shortcomings that make up her whole personhood and her whole personality. And so a woman with female orgasmic disorder does not have kind of a singular picture or an archetype that she might fit into. She can come from all intersections of identity and face really unique issues. So I think that's important to keep in mind when talking about female orgasmic disorder and when clinicians are going forward and assessing for it. So to start, one recommendation that I have is that um, sexual functioning should just become a part of a standard psychological evaluation that someone may come in for when they aren't quite sure what their diagnosis or diagnoses are. At my last job, I often sat in on intake sessions for one clinician in particular that mostly did psychological testing. And not one time did I observe her ask people about their sexual functioning, even in situations where the presenting concerns aligned highly with um, highly comorbid disorders with female orgasmic disorder, like bipolar disorder or obsessive compulsive disorder. And I think this highlights a couple of things. I think for one, it highlights that as a society, we're very uncomfortable talking about sex, both with the functional and dysfunctional aspects of it. And secondly, that in psychology, it is seen as a non-essential part of a person since it's isn't really generally brought up in typical assessment or counseling. So I think it can be really uncomfortable uh, to talk about this, but it kind of needs to happen so that we can really get people functioning to their maximum level and enjoying life and their bodies to their full capacity, especially when this might not be the traditional experience of most women. In sexual health, it's important to kind of underline that it's just as mar- just as much a part of your overall health as mental health is. And I think as a society, we're finally coming to see that importance of mental health 
in uh, your overall well-being, but I think we can take it one step further and include sexual health in that view as well. Another recommendation that I've come up with is to automatically screen for sexual dysfunction in those disorders that have been indicated to be highly comorbid with sexual dysfunction. So like in the example at my last office, when someone's coming in for bipolar or OCD assessing, maybe we should just automatically screen for um, sexual dysfunction. And this can also include like depression screenings and anorexia or other eating disorders, just to name a few disorders that would count as highly comorbid. And this would just allow us to be sure to get a more full clinical picture of the person. And then from there, we can kind of cater their care to meet the needs that they specifically have instead of just generalizing their treatment based on their diagnoses. We look at them at the exact position that they're at. And in general, an assessment for psychological needs would never not include questions of depression, anxiety, and suicidality, but often they completely ignore someone's sexual context. And while it might not be such a life and death um, you know, measure as suicidality might be, it still is an important thing. And this just makes it hard to get a sense of a person's general baseline or starting point that could then enable us to track progress or track if the patient is getting worse. So if we don't include that into the assessment, then it's hard to understand where a patient's really coming from. And it's especially important when there is a comorbid diagnosis because there can be a lot of interaction of symptoms that can kind of make the clinical picture of a person more murky. So the clinician just needs to be able to untangle the client's psychopathology a little bit more clearly to be able to help the client to their fullest potential. So I think that was just an important thing to highlight for me. Another big theme I found in my research is that medications are a really big issue for bringing on female orgasmic disorder. I talked about in the last episode how common medications for obsessive compulsive disorder, bipolar disorder, and depressive disorders can bring about issues with orgasm. So I think this just brings out Um, an underlying issue that the pharmaceutical industry really needs to find other options for treating one disorder without creating another. Because at what cost do we want to alleviate some symptoms while bringing about others? So yes, you might feel less depressed, but if you're having sexual um, struggles or dysfunctions in that area, it could very well bring back on the depression. So I think that's just an important factor to think about. Also, going back to the assessments needing to include a baseline of sexual functioning, if someone goes on medications and starts having sexual dysfunction but never had an assessment of a baseline measure, it's really hard to be sure if the meds are the issue entirely or if something else is going on. So you can't really form that causal relationship, which is really helpful when working with medications to be able to, you know, take someone off of that medication if you find out that it's not working for them. So I just think at the beginning of assessment and treatment, If you get that baseline, you can then adjust the meds and the treatment accordingly, and that'll just be best for everyone involved. It saves saves work on the clinician's part, and it also saves a lot of strife for the patient. Um, And while I was doing research for these podcasts, it also kind of highlighted a lot of holes in the current academic research that can be growth areas surrounding female orgasmic disorder. 
So we need to have a better understanding of the causes to know where to go from there. As I talked about in the first episode, the prevalence rate of female orgasmic disorder ranges from 10% to 42% of the general population. That wide range in and of itself shows that even the basic incidence and prevalence rates of the disorder aren't well understood. So there's a basic level of knowledge that is lacking about female orgasmic disorder that makes it hard to build upon and hard for a clear course of action to be made. In a similar vein, a lot of the research I came across assumed that trauma was the main cause in a lot of cases of female orgasmic disorder. So this shows another blind spot in the field when considering all the potential causes that could lead to anorgasmia. And going off of that, we need more research on, you know, everyday stressors and quote-unquote normal factors that can kind of lead someone to having sexual dysfunctions. And some of these factors might be relationship issues, job stress, political climate stress, and many other things. Um, We can't just pigeonhole the women struggling with female orgasmic disorder and assume things about them, including, um, you know, the cause of their struggles. In reality, our lack of understanding of the disorder and its origins is precisely the reason there is misunderstanding with assessing for and treating it. I think a more societal view of its origins needs to be taken into account because I would hypothesize that a lot of how we treat teach girls about their bodies and sexuality could play into them having issues with sex and orgasm specifically you know, later on down the road. And with that, I'd like to introduce my guest on this podcast. So Michelle is a really good friend of mine who is also studying at the University of Kentucky, and I brought her on to bring a more broad perspective on this topic into play. She's getting her master's in sexual health promotion, and she studies sexual education and can speak to some overarching themes that may contribute to female orgasmic disorder. So Michelle, if you want to dive in and add your two cents, that will really round up this discussion, I think. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. I've listened to the other episodes, so I'm honored to sit here and talk with you more about female orgasmic disorder and within my realm, um, understanding how this relates uh, to sex education. So uh, most importantly, before we dive into female orgasmic disorder and how it relates to the education that we're brought up on is to understand where we're at right now with our education system. And we really want to see a push right now for what is called comprehensive sex education. This isn't uh, happening right now. Um, We really only have a push for what is called abstinence education. So only teaching adolescents that the only way to stay protected is to never engage in sexual activity. And the other form, which is called abstinence plus, the plus part includes uh, HIV understanding and STI understanding. But what we really need is this idea of comprehensively understanding our bodies and who we are, which is um, lacking. So with that being said, what we currently have right now is an education system within sex education that is, uh, has really two things that really relate to f- this issue of female orgasmic disorder. The first being is that it is not sex positive. So by that, we mean that when it, they are learning about sex, they are not understanding that they themselves are sexual beings. There are functions that their bodies have to perform. They need to fear a lot of the outcomes that happen with sexual activity. And when there's fear and guilt based around that, they never get to truly understand themselves as people who can engage in activity that is a part of who they are. It's a part of being human and that there's a lot of positives that can come from that. And we're really trying to 
see a shift in that right now and hopefully make that a standard would be fantastic so that adolescents understand that they are sexual beings and that it's okay to engage. And if you choose to engage, here's what you can do to protect yourself. So that's not the conversation we're seeing. The second thing that specifically really related to female orgasmic disorder is that the way we're teaching sex ed is incredibly male-centric. So we're learning about sex education and we're really just looking at the byproducts. We're learning about the fear of pregnancy, the fear of STIs and HIV, as mentioned before. And these young kids are only learning about really anatomy of the body. And they're also learning that the only pleasure that's coming from that when you learn about how pregnancy happens is that the male will always have pleasure. The male will always get to ejaculate. There's always this idea that if that's the end product of sex, that it's not really over until this particular action is performed. And there's never a mention of what um, a female has to do besides being somebody who delivers a new, a new creation, which should be discussed, but it's not the only part of what makes us human. And women miss out on understanding that they themselves are sexual beings. And men get to walk away from that education, understanding that they get to always end with having this intense pleasure. So then it becomes this conversation of sex being very pleasurable for men and not pleasurable for women and no understanding really of terms that relate to like the clitoris or the vulva or understanding that there's sexual anatomy that needs to be understood for women to make safe decisions about their bodies, let alone understanding what it means to, to be sexual, to make decisions for themselves and to be um, proud of uh, who they are and their own sexual activity if they choose to engage in it. All right, Michelle. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking about something that I know sits really close to both of our hearts. So just to kind of uh, bring back the discussion and round it out at the last portion of our you know, talk, um, as Michelle kind of pointed out, the way that we teach and talk about sex has really serious implications on young girls who then grow up to be sexual people. So if we want younger women to grow up and develop fully sexually, then we just need to give them that room in their adolescent years to do so. And then Michelle talked about, you know, sex positivity being an issue. And even with the framing of female orgasmic disorder, the fact that it is labeled as a disorder is problematic in the way it makes people think about it. As I've tried to make clear, there are a wide range of experiences that women can have within this diagnosis, and it's not a death sentence if someone has it. Um, orgasmic dis- difficulties are a pretty normal experience that many women go through at different portions of their life. And we just need to normalize the discussion around it. Michelle also mentioned our male-centered sex education system. And and that kind of environment just breeds an environment where young women aren't really put into the driver's seats of their sexuality and their sexual pleasure and their bodily autonomy. So we just need to change the general culture around sex in order to make life better for women who might have challenges with orgasm. So if you are a woman with any of these issues, just know that you're not alone and that this, you know, disorder definition or diagnosis doesn't define you. And with that, thank you everyone for tuning in. Um, I hope that this mini series has been helpful for y'all and might spark some interest that you might not know that you had. Thank you. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about